Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Welcome, welcome to the University of Sydney. My name is Duncan Iverson. I'm Deputy Vice Chancellor of Research at the University. It's my great pleasure to be welcoming you all here tonight uh, to this evening's Michael Hinsey Lecture. Before I begin, I just want to acknowledge that uh, we meet on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. This part of the university campus is built on their traditional lands. Uh, Victoria Park next door to us, that big, deep bowl, was a place of uh, culture and politics and, and knowledge. And we're very proud to continue that association with being a place of learning over many thousands of years. So I want to begin tonight's proceedings by acknowledging traditional owners, both past and present. My next duty is to also welcome Sir Hugh. It's wonderful to have uh, someone of uh, such a distinguished uh, uh, pedigree and uh, international reputation to be with, be with us tonight. Uh, James will say a bit more about Sir Hugh in a minute, um, but I want to welcome him here to Sydney and uh, to all of you who have either visiting the University of Sydney for the first time or are returning or our students uh, or fellow colleagues. It's great to have you here and the turnout I think is testament to both Sir Hugh and the Center for National Security Studies. The other thing I wanted to do was just acknowledge that this is indeed the 10th anniversary of the Center for International Security Studies and we're very proud of, uh, to mark that uh, anniversary this year. And of course I need to thank uh, the visionary uh, generosity of Sir Michael Hintzey for his gift that inaugurated the center and that helped support uh, the Michael Hintzey chair currently held by James Dardarian. I also want to acknowledge Alan Dupont. It's wonderful to have you here, Alan, who is the inaugural director of the center. Uh, and we're delighted uh, to celebrate the achievements of both Alan and James and all the colleagues in the center that have done so much to enhance, uh, encourage, promote, and provoke debates about international security studies uh, in Australia. Uh, the University of Sydney, uh, you'll forgive me for doing this, is home to not only an extraordinary group of social scientists in our School of Social and Political Sciences and international historians in our School of Philosophical and Historical Inquiry, but in particular is home to an extraordinary group of political scientists and also experts in international relations. We've really decided to try and make Sydney home to an extraordinary strength in international relations and security studies. And I think CIS forms part of that uh, ambition. So without further ado, uh, thank you all for coming. It's wonderful to have you here. And I'd now like to hand over to James to make the formal introduction. James. Thank you, uh, Duncan, for the really gracious remarks. But thank you all for coming. I think it's really testimony to the reputation of our speaker that we have a full house today. So thank you, and particularly for the Navy showing out. This is a, quite a showing here, so thank you. <laughs> um, I also wanted to thank Michael, who just showed up on the screen here, Hinsa, who, who did have a, a vision about security, international security. And it was to support something that was something unusual at the time, which is non-traditional security. And it's something that we're continuing to this day of uh, looking at issues like health security or biosecurity, cybersecurity, um, but also information and how the media can also be a driver, an actor in international politics. And you know, he put um, um, considerable funds into this and pays my salary, so I'm very grateful to him. Um, I'm also grateful to Alain Dupont, who, who really established this center and who's here with us today. So I want to thank Alan, but also Alan for really establishing a foundation of an incredible staff. Um, 
it made my job a lot easier to sort of parachute in here and have some remarkable people who are here today as colleagues, and so I'm, I'm very appreciative about that as well. Um, so um, we're here um, to hear what Sir Hugh Strong has to say about the First World War, so I'm not going to go on for too much longer, except um, I have uh, the privilege also to thank some people who make this all happen. And one is we've had a long-term collaboration with Sydney Ideas. And Meredith just does this over and over again. I really appreciate it for you know, filling the house and for making this easy for all of us. And our two great project coordinators, um, Ray, Raylene Luong and uh, Jose Toyalba, who um, put together this slideshow that's been going in loop. I hope you're not having a clockwork orange reaction to this. It's, I'm sorry. You are. Okay, sorry. Um, we're going to turn it off. In fact, um, they also put together a very short video of highlights. So to give you a moving image here, um, we're going to briefly show this, and then I'm going to introduce Sir Hugh. Well, that's um, the history of CIS in five minutes for the last few years, but we're here for another anniversary, and that's the centennial of the First World War. And in particular, that falls upon today um, the Battle for Mel, which led to 5,500 plus Australian casualties um, in that war. And um, we have, I think, um, you know, difference of opinion about these anniversaries, how they're interpreted. But the important thing to remember is how we remember. Um, the, the memories influence current decisions about whether to go to war or not. And it's one of the reasons why um, I think people showed up today. It's a curiosity just not about the First World War, but it's also an anxiety and apprehension about you know, one crisis after another that we're experiencing uh, today in, in Turkey and France, um, certainly the United States, and um, yes, we might even talk about the South China Sea as having some parallels to the lead up to the First World War. So um, we're really um, pleased uh, because it's our mission at the Center uh, for International Security Studies to bring together policy studies and the academic inquiry into the past. And um, I couldn't think of a better person than to have Sir Hugh Strawn uh, help us remember and to learn from the 100th anniversary, the 100 year anniversary of the First World War. Sir Hugh Strawn is a military historian, he's a strategist, but he's a writer. I mean, he's an incredible writer. Um, if anybody's picked up his books, and he's been recently honored this year for that writing, the Pritzker Prize, probably one of the most prestigious prizes for a lifetime achievement of military writing. Um, he is a fellow of Corpus Christi College of Cambridge. He's emeritus, um, also a fellow of All Souls College, where he was the Chichel, um, uh, I always get this wrong, I think he's the Chichel Professor of the History of War, not of War. Um, and he, as well now, has moved on back to his homeland, maybe soon to be a country, of uh, Scotland. Um, he's, at, <laughs> he's at St. Andrews University. Um, I'm not going to go through all his books, but uh, I would just urge you to pick up some to see uh, someone who, you know, writes with a fluency uh, about complex issues and doesn't take the easy route of, you know, um, every cause having an effect. Um, he really doesn't talk down to his audiences. And it's also apparent in the television shows that have come from um, his works, most particularly his multi-volume work on the First World War. Um, I use this book on Clausewitz uh, to teach. It's been um, well received. And um, I think that uh, his body of work has been really dedicated to um, enriching our understanding of not just of military history, but its legacy uh, for the present. Um, 
I'm not going to go on about all his awards. Um, I'm simply going to say that um, it is probably, uh, I think, to the credit of this uh, Michael Hinsel lecture, but to Australia, um, and it's our honor to have you here today, um, Hugh, and so please join me in a warm welcome. James, thank you very much indeed. Um, thank you for the invitation. Um, and uh, even the Navy people know that today is the centenary of the Battle of Fromel. Um, uh, Australia's open engagement on the Western Front uh, and, of course, a disaster for those troops, uh, British as well as Australian, I would remind you, uh, who happened to fight in it. Um, for that very reason, until about a decade ago, Australia didn't actually bother to mark Fromel. Um, it's been extraordinary to be here this week, uh, where the coverage has been almost continuous uh, from day to day in the newspapers. Um, because in the past, uh, Australia's engagement on the Western Front was marked by Pozier, uh, which will fall on Saturday, I think I'm right in saying, uh, which was a much more successful engagement. And I begin there, and it's rather convenient I begin there, because what it shows is one of my core arguments, I suppose, which is that today's commemoration, like most of what both Australia and Britain, and indeed, I have to say, probably most of the other countries that are marking the centenary of the First World War have done, uh, those events have concerned... Uh, or concentrated it on things that make sense to us today rather more, it seems to me, than they make sense or might have made sense to those who took part in them. In other words, we look at the past through our preoccupations and through our concerns, uh, and we find it very hard to empathise. Uh, as a historian, of course, I hope that what we can do through the centenary is to empathise, is to understand the past on its own terms. Uh, but I'm not arrogant enough. Um, I hope I'm not arrogant enough. You can tell me whether I'm arrogant enough. Um, I'm not arrogant enough to believe that that is actually what will come out of this. Um, I, I, I suspect that each of you, when you confront the centenary of Fromel or when you confront the centenary of Gallipoli, takes away from that something which makes sense to you personally rather than necessarily reflects what a historian would tell you you ought to be thinking about it. Fromel in particular pays into two prevailing narratives, and the first, of course, is the predictable one of pom bashing, um, the lives of brave Australians uh, given up by callous British generals, uh, not totally untrue in this context. Um, I have to say we have a Scottish version increasingly of that, which is the lives, of course, of brave Scottish soldiers given up by English generals, doesn't work quite so well when Douglas Haig is the general. Um, but uh, Scots are just as capable of being myopic about these things as Australians. Um, it also, of course, ignores the fact that Fromel ultimately, in its strategic objective, achieved what it set out to do, which was to provide a diversionary attack uh, to prevent uh, German reserves going south from Lille uh, to get engaged in the rather more significant battle going on on the Somme. The second narrative uh, which plays into current preoccupations uh, and one that absolutely has resonance uh, in Britain as well as I suspect in Australia 
is this idea that soldiers are victims and not victors. Um, they are portrayed as heroes, not because they engage with the enemy and kill him, or even her today, uh, but because they suffer with stoicism. Uh, the memorial at Fromel, uh, a new memorial, uh, does not show a digger bayonetting the Bosch, as the memorial erected at Mont Saint Quentin in 1924 did, but so shows a soldier rescuing uh, a wounded comrade under fire. Much more easy to live with that image uh, than the image of closing with the enemy. Now, the task I've given myself tonight, I think you gave it to me, James, but anyway, uh, I'll say that it's, it's the one I've got to carry, whether whoever gave it. Uh, my task is to link the First World War to today's world. Um, and what uh, I need to say, I think, from the beginning is how I plan to do that uh, and how uh, there are certain things that you might think I'm going to do which I'm not going to do. Uh, how do we approach the past on terms uh, which are not necessarily ours but nonetheless have some validity for us today? Uh, James has already referred to one or two reasons why it would be very easy simply to say there are First World War connections to be found in our, at least, international engagement. Uh, uh, and this week has provided at least two potent examples. Um, first of all, of course, the dispute between China and its neighbors uh, and between China and the US uh, in the South China Sea uh, and indeed Australia's involvement and concern about that as well um, back up uh, an agenda which says that the First World War provides some ways of understanding how major power conflict might take place in the early 21st century. Um, I forget the number of times in which I've been uh, in the US, uh, including uh, the Naval War College, we were talking about this uh, over drinks just before com uh, coming in here, where I have been asked to talk uh, about this where instead of China, you read Germany, and instead of the US, you read the UK, um, and the Anglo-German naval arms race is once again run through as though it was that that caused the First World War. Um, one of the reassuring things, if you're concerned about US-China relations in the South China Sea, is that no historian, no serious historian today, argues that that caused the outbreak of the First World War. Uh, that is, if you like, the history of international relations by analogy. History does not repeat itself, and it certainly doesn't repeat itself when you do those sort of conversions. Um, and history, uh, to uh, refer to Mark Twain, uh, although he took the opposite view, doesn't even rhyme very often. Uh, the other uh, example, um, and in a way a more powerful one, is what is happening in Turkey. Um, the coup the failed coup in Turkey, uh, and now, of course, much more significantly, the counter-coup by the president, by President Erdogan, um, provides a point of connection to what uh, was until recently called the new Ottomanism um, in Turkey. Uh, the notion that here again uh, is Turkey in the ascendant as a power in the Levant and in the Middle East, um, one that collapsed under the strain of the First World War uh, and yet is confronting, if you like, an unfinished agenda. Or, uh, staying in the same part of the world in similar terms, the arguments uh, that ISIS uses, um, that what it is addressing is the uh, legacy of the Sykes-Picot agreement, uh, 
1916 of an Anglo-French colonial arrangement uh, which it has to undo. Uh, thus, uh, both examples, uh, and these are ones I say, as I say, with which I have more sympathy, which provide a causal link back to the First World War uh, in order to explain what is happening in today's world. And I have more sympathy with that, in part, of course, because uh, neither President Erdogan, if he were here, um, or an ISIS representative, maybe there is one here, but, um, or an ISIS representative uh, would necessarily dispute the notion that there is a link between the events of the First World War and the arguments that they might now be uh, presenting. As a historian, I am interested in the problems of change and of continuity. I am interested in the idea of change over time and evolution, and it is those links that I want to explore tonight, the links between the First World War and how we think about war today. So I'm going to say a bit about war, about strategy within war, and rather less about international relations, unless I run out of time, in which case I will come back to international <coughs> relations, but I suspect I've got quite enough to say as it is. Now, yesterday at the Lowy Institute, um, Joan Beaumont, um, the author of a wonderful book uh, on Australia in the First World War, if you haven't read it, and Jeff Gray, who also, of course, has written extensively on Australia in the First World War, and I addressed the Battle of Fromel. Um, at, and the consensus in that discussion was that Australian soldiers today would not be asked by their officers or indeed by the government of Australia to go over the top into the face of German machine gun fire uh, as did the soldiers of Australia at Fromel. The idea, therefore, of making some connection between the First World War and today's world may suggest that I'm on a fool's errand. We are simply too disconnected from the First World War and from the terms in which it was conducted uh, for there to be possible links. And above all, we seem to be separated from that war, but the even more significant war, the Second World War, that occurred between then and now. Um, and I therefore want to say, I want to tell a story about the First World War, about the end of the First World War, sorry, get my wars right, the end of the Second World War, uh, in order to explain where I'm going with this. The Second World War is, of course, close to us in time. Uh, many, probably everybody in this room, uh, has met somebody who served in the Second World War, or at least you've got a pretty good chance of doing so. Indeed, there may be one or two people in this room who themselves served in the Second World War. Uh, there is nobody here who served in the First World War, I can say that with complete confidence, one thing that might be right about today's lecture. Uh, and there is very unlikely, you know, if you're of a certain age, uh, you will have met somebody. Uh, I am of an age to have met somebody, many people who served in the First World War. But if you're below a certain age, the probability is you haven't. So the Second World War is closer in time and more immediate. Um, and it is, of course, was, of course, a far more significant and far more costly conflict than the First World War was, despite uh, the apparent reputation of the First World War. At the end of the First World War, and this is the story I want to begin with, a young American scholar, known uh, by reputation, I'm sure, to some of you, Bernard Brody, um, was uh, driving through uh, New York on the 7th of August, 1945, to be precise. Brody 
uh, was working on maritime uh, and uh, strategy and sea power uh, under the supervision of one Edward Mead Earle um, at Princeton. Edward Mead Earle uh, was the editor of what for me as a young scholar was the standard work on the development of strategic thought, uh, an edited volume called The Makers of Modern Strategy, which was published in 1943, uh, a bit of work inspired precisely by the US's involvement in the Second World War. Um, and as a result of that work, Earl had realized uh, that there was insufficient attention to maritime strategy, uh, which was precisely why he'd got Brodie to work on the subject. And Brodie had already written two books uh, on maritime strategy on, by the 7th of April, 7th of August, I beg your pardon, uh, 1945. Now, according to the story, Brody was in the car with his wife, um, and he tells us that he stopped the car, jumped out, and bought a copy of the New York Times. The day before, on the 6th of August, the US had dropped the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima. He read the report and turned to his wife, saying, everything I have ever written is obsolete. The events of the next week seemed to prove him right. A second bomb, as you know, was dropped on Nagasaki on the 9th of August, and Japan surrendered on the 15th of August. Over the next year, Brody set out to understand his own initial and instinctive reaction to the dropping of the two atomic bombs and to explain it to a wider audience. And the result was published in 1946, a book called The Absolute Weapon, uh, Atomic Peace and World War. And he declared in that book, the comparisons uh, between uh, the atomic bomb and the military inventions of the past were simply ridiculous. As he put it, to quote him, thus far, the chief purpose of our military establishment has been to win wars. From now on, its chief purpose must be to avert them. Not everyone was as immediately convinced as Brody was in 1945 that there had been a clean break with the past, particularly, of course, those who flew manned aircraft were very keen to argue that there was continuity, at least for air forces. But with the arrival of the hydrogen bomb and then the alliance of the hydrogen bomb with uh, an unmanned missile system, um, the view that Brody had espoused took hold. Uh, and by, by the mid-1950s, uh, the core problem within strategy had indeed become not to wage war, but to prevent it. That presented the study of strategy with an existential crisis. It no longer rested on the history of war, but on the study of mathematical probability and of game theory. It moved from being uh, heavily experiential to being equally heavily theoretical. From having turned overwhelmingly to the past for its inspiration, it now looked disproportionately to the future. Now, throughout the Cold War, that remained the key break in thinking about strategy. It was the impact of the First World War. In 1978, uh, I had to lecture at the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst, and I had responsibility for lecturing on nuclear deterrence. The title of that lecture, given me, I have to say, by the high hegens of the Royal Military Academy, was... Uh, the revolution in strategy. 
There was no question mark. Uh, it simply was the revolutionary strategy. Uh, and that uh, story, which was everything had been changed by the bomb, self-evidently suggested that looking at the First World War had nothing constructive to offer. In fact, the position of the First World War was even worse than that. The First World War was an object lesson in how not to do strategy. Uh, during the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, or so the story goes, this probably like the story about Bernard Brody is, uh, has an element of elaboration in it. Um, during the course of the Cuban Missile Crisis, J.F. Kennedy is alleged to have been reading The Guns of August by Barbara Tuchman. Uh, I'm inclined to be doubtful about this story, principally because I think Kennedy had other things on his mind. Uh, but it is true that The Guns of August came out in 1962, um, and therefore at least it was chronologically possible for him to read the book. The Guns of August, um, and actually if you haven't read it, it's worth reading. The Guns of August uh, cleaves uh, to the arguments uh, that the war, the First World War, uh, began by accident. Uh, the argument that has once again become fashionable, that Europe slithered over the brink into the boiling cauldron of war, to quote Lloyd George, that this was a war that could have been avoided. Uh, and if Kennedy didn't read Tuchman's Guns of August during the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, that was certainly what he'd been taught at Harvard in the late 1930s by Sidney Fay, uh, who took exactly that view when it was extraordinarily fashionable um, in the 1930s. Uh, what, of course, that also suggested was not only was this a war that should never have happened, that it happened by accident rather than by design, but also that the outcome was a war that was both futile uh, and wasteful, uh, that it was unnecessary in its origin and terrible in its conduct. On the 50th anniversary, with its veterans still alive, the First World War was a metaphor for the dangers of nuclear war. What Kennedy and the world confronted in 1962 promised a conflict that would vastly outstrip that of 1914-18 in terms of its wastefulness and futility, but gave, if you like, a form of concrete reality to what for them was simply an abstract possibility. As the casualties of the Somme figure uh, flicker up if you ever watch the film of Joan Littlewood's Oh, What a Lovely War, or indeed, as in my case, as a, a teenager in Edinburgh going to a stage production of the, the original production, and they did this on stage as well, as the casualty figures of the song flicker up uh, behind the musical routines of the First World War songs, what, of course, the audience of the early 60s, mid-60s was concerned with was not so much the impact of the First World War as the threat of an all-out nuclear exchange to which they themselves uh, were at least nominally exposed. Um, and so uh, the First World War uh, became uh, a vehicle for understanding war in the 60s and the implication of war in the 60s. Uh, what uh, we now have to reckon with, uh, a, a quarter of a century, uh, sorry, a quarter of a century on from the end of the Cold War, is that we live in a world in which the salience of nuclear weapons is far less obvious. The impact of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the legacy of 1945, is less urgent than it was in the 1960s, or indeed than it was in the 1970s or the 1980s. 
burdened with a different set of concerns regarding war than those of the 1960s, and indeed burdened with a much more direct experience of conflict, um, a real war, uh, rather than with the threat of war, we can ask different questions of the First World War than did Kennedy, Tuchman, and those of that generation. In many respects, the First World War remains as formative of our attitudes uh, as do both the Second World War and the Cold War. Today, one of the constant refrains, uh, and I hear it here in Australia just as much as I hear it in Britain, is that we have politicians who seem to be unable to think through strategy and that we ourselves seem to have lost the way in which we make strategy. But what is striking to me is that when we use that accusation, when we employ that accusation of those who govern us, that what we are talking about is an understanding of strategy that is itself peculiar to the 20th century. It is the idea, to use uh, the uh, phrasing of uh, somebody who was at the same college as I was at Cambridge, uh, Basil Little Hart, um, that strategy is the use of war for the ends of policy. Uh, that is not a definition which anybody finds particularly controversial today. But that is not how strategy was defined in 1914. In 1914, uh, the standard definition of strategy was not that war was used for the instruments of policy. Instead, strategy was understood to be concerned with the relationship between battle and war. Karl von Clausewitz, uh, and James referred to him uh, when he was uh, saying his kind words about me by way of introduction, Karl von Clausewitz regularly defines strategy as the use of the battle for the purposes of the war. He focused it very closely uh, and succinctly within the context of what generals do and how armies behave. And that was the dominant interpretation right up until the outbreak of the First World War. In 1912, uh, a German general, Friedrich von Bernhardi, uh, who was regularly castigated in the propaganda of the First World War, wrote a book uh, which deliberately emulated Clausewitz, which was called On War of Today. And Bernhardi wrote in that book, the object of strategy is to bring the troops into action in the decisive direction and in the greatest possible strength to bring about the combat under as favorable conditions as possible. When the First World War broke out, Ben Hardy was recalled to service to command a division in the First World War, and presumably, therefore, uh, even if in a relatively humble command, uh, was trying his best to do exactly that. On the other side of the front line, there was somebody else who thought about this problem, Ferdinand Foch. Uh, the French uh, general who became the supreme allied commander in 1918 um, and the one whom, after the war, most allied commentators was best qualified to be classed as the outstanding commander of the war. France today does not apologize for Foch in the same way as uh, Britain tends to apologize for Douglas Haig. Uh, his reputation stands, relatively speaking, intact. In 1900, Foch was teaching at the Ecole de Guerre in Paris, uh, and he told his pupils, the future staff officers and generals of the French army, 
that there is only one form of strategy, that which aims at tactical results, at victory in battle. In 1918, Foch's lectures, which had been published in French before the war, were translated into English, uh, quite a good uh, commercial judgment by the British publishers, who presumably thought here is a well-known general of the day, uh, will quickly get out of translation um, and will sell lots of copies. And they asked Foch whether he'd like to write a, few, a new introduction in the light of his experiences uh, over the years 1914-18. Um, admittedly, in 1918, Foch, like Kennedy in 1962, must have been a bit biddy, busy, uh, but he agreed to write a foreword. Um, and in that foreword, he said that very little that he had experienced in the First World War had led him to cause any, uh, to think through the, any subsequent changes. He acknowledged that national mobilization and industrialization had changed the scale and means of war, but said the fundamental truths remained unchangeable. And just as Foch did not revise his views, uh, nor did Douglas Haig. Douglas Haig uh, wrote a final dispatch in 1919 uh, when he gave up the command of the British Expeditionary Force, uh, in which he justified his tenure of command. Um, and he wrote, if the operations of the past four and a half years are regarded as a single continuous campaign, there can be recognized in them the same general features and the same necessary stages which between forces of approximately equal strength have marked all the conclusive battles of history. So like Foch, Haig acknowledged that there had been changes in technology, but denied that the First World War had thrown up any new principles in how war should be conducted. And a very similar point can be made in, about Germany. For Germany, too, uh, there was a belief in the 1920s uh, that there was an unchanging, underlying continuity in how strategy should be thought through. Uh, in arguing that Germany had not been defeated in the field in 1918, but had been stabbed in the back by events at, at home and above all, of course, by the revolution uh, of November 1918, the German general staff deflected attention from, from its responsibility for losing the war. Those who then uh, wished to attack the army said, but ha-ha, you didn't lose the war in 1918, you'd already lost it in September 1914 because you had failed to achieve a quick victory uh, on the battlefield of the Marne. Uh, in other words, uh, you still lost the war uh, and you can't just blame events at home. The man who responded to that most directly was a man called Wilhelm Gröner, who had been the head of the railway section of the German general staff in 1914 and who became the first quartermaster general uh, of the German army at the very end of the war in succession to Erich Ludendorff. He subsequently became Minister of Defence in the Weimar government. And a decade after the war's end, he addressed this charge that the German army had effectively lost the war from the very beginning by writing two books on the legacy of, Al uh, of Alfred von Schlieffen, the chief of the general staff and the author of what today we call the Schlieffen Plan, um, however questionable that description might be. And what Groener argued uh, was that the war could have been won in a single campaign if only the German army had stuck to the Schlieffen plan, that Schlieffen had the solution. 
in other words, he too was essentially saying uh, that there was no underlying need to address the problems of strategy, that strategy was still the use of the battle for the purposes of the war, um, and that if only you stick to that principle, uh, then everything will be all right. Um, so here are three generals, Groener, Foch, and Haig, who, like Clausewitz, all saw strategy as the use of the battle, saw strategy as the business of generals, uh, and saw uh, war as a matter far too complicated to be left to politicians, uh, as General Van Riper says in Dr. Strangelove, uh, which came out, of course, in 1964. Now, in practice, strategy in the First World War looked very different. All of them were wrong. Um, and uh, strategy had to engage not only politicians, but also think about some th something uh, much broader than victory in war. And there were generals who were much more forward-looking than either of any of the three that I've already mentioned. Many German generals appreciated that they had lost the First World War precisely because they had failed to link a military understanding of war and what strategy was about to wider German policy. And indeed, one of the more alarming things, if you're disposed to be alarmist, uh, as you read German generals' diaries, um, not necessarily very good for anybody's equilibrium, but if you read them in 1916-17, and they moan about the Kaiser uh, and the Kaiser's inability to unite war to policy, and they say, if only we had a leader, ein Führer, uh, who would be able to coordinate these things. Um, they realized, uh, in ways, of course, we now find remarkably sinister, that war and policy needed to be linked. In Britain, Willie Robertson, the Chief of the Imperial General Staff between 1915 and 1918, uh, recognized in the memoirs that he wrote after the war that strategy in the First World War was not made at Douglas Haig's General Headquarters, but in London by the War Cabinet. Fighting in a global war required a much more expansive view of strategy. It required fighting on multiple fronts, mobilizing not only men for the armed forces, but industry for protracted conflict, and coordinating all this across a coalition of independent and independently-minded states. Moreover, in practice, the pursuit of battle, particularly, of course, on the Western Front, had not produced a particularly satisfactory outcome. The notion that somehow the culmination of strategy would be a decisive battle did not make much sense if you were at Frommel, and nor did it make much sense if you were fighting further south 100 years ago on the Somme battlefield. The Somme battle uh, by the 19th of July was already nearly three weeks old, and it would go on for five months, and when would it end? It would not end with a decisive battlefield success. It would simply fizzle out because the winter had come, um, and indeed the battlefield of the Somme will be fought over twice more during the course of the First World War. Instead, therefore, of decisive battle, what the pursuit of battle, if that was the object of the strategy, uh, the strategy was meant to deliver, came to mean was the domination of tactics and trenches, to such an extent that those trenches have come to dominate our understanding of what the First World War is about. Uh, more than almost anything else in terms of how we encapsulate that war. Uh, 
Now, saying that does not mean that trenches did not serve a strategic purpose. Undoubtedly, they did. Uh, they enabled force protection. They enabled the rear, uh, so vital to the feeding and supplying of the front, to be protected too. And they enabled ground to be held with fewer men, so enabling mass to be redeployed elsewhere to other fronts, as the Germans did wonderfully successfully in 1915-1916, overrunning Poland, the Baltic States, Serbia, and Romania, um, and as the Allies tried to do rather less effectively at Gallipoli and Palestine, or rather more effectively in Palestine. But trench fighting in itself was very hard to convert into a strategic outcome. Command in real time was next to impossible without a man-portable field radio, and only at sea could command be exercised in real time thanks to the wireless, because, of course, warships could carry the very heavy bit of kit that a wireless then was. So authority tended to go down the command chain, away from the commander-in-chief to the more junior ranks. Uh, and the reactions of generals and their staffs was to put the weight on planning and careful preparation as a substitute. The strategic plan became an end in itself rather than strategy being the end. And the consequence of this re response was to remove surprise before the attack, to deny flexibility during the conduct of that attack, and to remove the ability to improvise when everything began to go wrong. So what could be done to reconnect tactics to strategy and to give battle a strategic purpose? The answer most often associated with this war, and a word used with pejorative overtones and uttered between gritted teeth, was attrition. Attrition had pre-war origins. For a couple of decades before the outbreak of the First World War, the official historians of the German army had debated with an academic historian, Hans Delbruck, the strategy which explained Frederick the Great's conduct of the Seven Years' War. Like Germany in the First World War, Prussia in 1756 had faced a coalition to east and west in which France and Russia again figured, but in this case, of course, Britain had been an ally and Austria was the enemy. Delbruck argued that because Prussia lacked the resources to win such a war, Frederick the Great had avoided battle and exploited his central position in Europe by manoeuvring between his enemies, exhausting them in the process. That was a strategy at a different level from that which Foch, Haig, and Groener had been discussing. Indeed, they didn't really understand what he was talking about, which is why the German general staff historians got so cross with Hans Delbruck. Uh, this was about using war for the purposes of policy, not about using battle for the purposes of the war. The German general staff historians rejected what Delbruck had said for two reasons. First of all, because they were wedded to the idea that the decisive battle had to be the payoff for strategy, it had to be a tactical outcome. And secondly, of course, because they could not possibly say that Frederick the Great had not pursued a decisive battle, because if they did that, they would have to conclude that the father figure in the history of strategy was a Frenchman called Napoleon, uh, and they were not willing to go quite that far. Delbruck called his view of Frederick's strategy Ermattungsstrategie, a wearing-out strategy. And the alternative to a wearing-out strategy, 
he argued, was a strategy of annihilation. Now, if you think about that distinction between a wearing out strategy and a strategy of annihilation, it leads to a different outcome in the war. Uh, the result of a wearing out strategy would produce almost certainly a compromised peace, the result of negotiation when both sides, or at least one side, found itself more exhausted than the other, but both sides would want uh, to bring the fighting to an end. The outcome of a strategy of annihilation would, according to the similar sort of logic, end with a dictated peace, would be the result of a convincing victory, uh, a sort of peace which would not brook of any negotiation. So the point here is that the product of strategy for Hans Delbruck was not battle, but how the war itself would end and the consequent peace settlement. During the First World War, Delbruck was alive and well. He edited a publication called the Preussische Jahrbuche, uh, and he sustained in that a running commentary on the war as it was being fought. Extraordinarily, he never seems to have applied his concept of the strategy of attrition to the First World War, and his ideas were as vilified by military commentators after the war as they had been before it. By then, of course, attrition had acquired a very different connotation. By then, attrition was used to try to give purpose to that tactical deadlock created by the trenches, of which Fromel is the outstanding example. In 1915, British and French generals were already talking about biting and holding, biting a chunk out of the enemy's line and forcing the enemy to counterattack, uh, and thus expend men uh, as a way of exhausting uh, the strength of the opposition. After the First World War, the supreme embodiment for thinking of that sort was the so-called Christmas 1915 memorandum written allegedly by Eric von Falkenhayn, the chief of the general staff. Um, it's very odd about Christmases in 1914, 15, 16, and 17. Anybody who was a senior statesman or a soldier, instead of spending time with their families, uh, would go and write a memorandum, presumably to get away from the children opening their presents and the terrible racket that would be going on uh, at home. In the case of Falkenhayn, we have no original uh, uh, version of this Christmas 1915 memorandum. It simply appears in his memoirs. Uh, and I'm pretty clear it appears in his memoirs uh, and nowhere else because he never actually wrote it at Christmas 1915. But what he said in that was that he endeavoured through the Battle of Verdun, he intended through the Battle of Verdun, in inverted commas, to bleed the French army white. Um, the result, of course... Uh, of this extraordinary abdication, as many saw it, of strategic sense, that the object was simply to kill men, was that the Christmas Memorandum became the supreme embodiment of all that had gone wrong with the First World War. And, of course, it is also reflected in how we understand, and I'm finally getting to the post-war stuff, just in case you were wondering, um, it comes to express what we understand by attrition today. It has moved from being this notion of manoeuvring to avoid battle, which is what Delbruck felt Frederick the Great had done in the 18th century, to instead being about battle itself. It was about seeking battle. 
Instead of being a strategy for the weaker power, which is what Frederick's Prussia would have been under Delbruck's interpretation, it now made sense for the stronger one, precisely because you were expending resources in trying to kill the enemy who was presumed to be weaker. Instead of being about ending the war on terms commensurate with its conduct, in other words, about negotiating as a result of exhaustion, it now came to be about killing pure and simple. It became, in other words, the embodiment of the idea that strategy in the First World War was bankrupt. And now fast forward, uh, just in case you were stuck in the trenches of 1914-18, to the US and Vietnam. Think there about how attrition is applied. Uh, the, the application of metrics to war, about the idea that the body count was what would matter and would determine the outcome of this war. And think, too, about how the counterinsurgency campaign in Afghanistan also became focused on the issue of metrics or of the number of Taliban leaders that might have been killed by drone strikes or, indeed, uh, the achievements of drone strikes anywhere else in the world. Maneuver uh, was no longer the means to effect attrition, as Delbruck had argued, and instead maneuver became virtuous because it was the antithesis of attrition, a way of getting out of this logjam of killing. Uh, one philosopher of war, A.J. Coates, writing in 1997 on the ethics of war, defined attrition in exactly the terms which it now comes to possess. As he put it, attrition is a method of warfare that has uh, as its deliberate aim the mass expenditure of men and material. It is a dehumanized view of war, according to which war is seen as an industrial and mechanical process in which the distinction between the human and the material element is systematically suppressed. So the legacy of attrition from the First World War seems to be that strategy has got itself into a dead end. Uh, that strategy uh, is indeed far too important to be left to generals precisely because it has come to be about killing and only killing. That insight that war is too important to be left to generals is normally attributed to the French Premier uh, in 1917-18, Georges Clemenceau. And its real significance uh, for uh, this evening lies less in what it says about war as a general phenomenon and much more in terms of what it says about strategy making in particular. Strategy in the First World War was not about the use of the battle for the purposes of the war, but about the use of war for the purposes of policy. That was the biggest change which the First World War affected in our understandings of strategy, and it is one that is with us still. Strategy was about the coordination of military and naval power uh, between both those and economic mobilization and economic warfare. It was about the mobilization of the nation and all its assets for the purposes of the war. It was about the coordination of national efforts within an alliance, and it was about the coordination of different theatres of war in space and time. If Delbruck's strategy of attrition found a place in the conduct of the First World War, and arguably it did, it was in the relationship between the fighting on the land fronts and the exhaustion of the enemy and the links between them 
and the application of economic warfare through maritime effects, whether through the Allied blockade or through Germany's use of unrestricted submarine warfare. And so the First World War became the laboratory in which this much more ambitious concept of strategy could be refined and developed. And it was a difficult process. It was a difficult process precisely because strategy's relationship with policy during the war was both distant and complicated. Distant because no, while nobody disputed that strategy should deliver an outcome through a victory, which would be of political utility, few accepted that policy should pervade the making of strategy in an operational sense. Uh, the idea that politicians could not get, should not get stuck into and involved with military matters, which of course still concerns us. And complex, because many politicians in the First World War persisted in trying to invade what the generals saw as their space, and so generated friction along the fault line of civil-military relations. What followed were institutional struggles. Most states in Europe before 1914 did not have the institutional framework to make strategy. Britain was an exception. It had a body called the Committee of Imperial Defence. Most states required that war to start generating the institutional frameworks to do so. And after the First World War, most states then began to think through how they understood strategy to reflect the institutions that they had created. JFC Fuller and Basil Little Hart uh, in the interwar period in Britain, developed what they called ground strategies. And, of course, that became the tool which then found expression in the hands of the Allies in the Second World War. It was, if you like, a First World War construction, a First World War creation that became a war-winning tool in 1939-45. But there was something else that was going on here, too, and that was the implication and the application of democratization. In the Napoleonic Wars, the presumption had been that revolution in France had led to war. And after those wars were over, the peacemakers of 1815 had been anxious to separate war from revolution. One of the reasons precisely they wanted to avoid subsequent revolutions was the fear that revolution would again lead to war. Broadly speaking, uh, by the end of the century, they seem to have achieved that. There had been revolutions in 1830 and 1848, but there had not been uh, a widespread European war as a consequence. In the First World War, something rather different happened. The war broke out, and then revolution became an instrument of war. Uh, Germany uh, tried to use revolution in Ireland, in India, uh, and across uh, the empires generally of France and Britain. Britain uh, promoted revolution uh, within the Ottoman Empire uh, and indeed in Germany as well by sending funds to support uh, the, social, uh, the, the, the SPD, the, the, the Socialist Party in Germany. Uh, and of course part of the justification for the blockade of Germany was that too would produce revolution. Uh, this is a reflection of democracy in action, the belief that if a democratic state is fighting a war, then it has the potential 
to undermine uh, the people's support for the government for whom they are fighting. Uh, that is the justification not only for the use of naval power in the First World War, but comes, becomes, of course, the justification for the use of the bomber in the Second World War. Uh, the belief that people, if hit hard enough, instead of getting angry with the people who are doing the hitting, will get angry uh, with the government that is requiring to fight the war. Uh, and the collapse of Germany in 1917-18, particularly, of course, uh, the revolution in November 1918, fed into that argument with the belief that economic war had caused the erosion of popular support for the Kaiser, forced the government down, and thus took Germany out of the war. In 1944-45, exactly the same argument is being used to explain the bomber offensive, um, that the German people will turn against Hitler, uh, and it is precisely why, after the July bomb plot, uh, in 1944, and Heinz Guderian becomes chief of the general staff uh, of the German army, he requires a renewed oath of loyalty from the German army to the person of Adolf Hitler, precisely because he wants to avoid another stab in the back and to ensure that people remain loyal. The two world wars, uh, in the two world wars, the democratic powers assumed that revolution was an asset in their armory, that the population was the prize, and that the population of the enemy was inherently democratic. And so the attack on the German people through blockade in that war, in the First World War, and through strategic bombing in the Second World War, worked on the assumption, the somewhat strange assumption, uh, that if you were nasty enough to the people, that they would indeed turn against their masters. The point here and it should, I hope, already be becoming familiar, is the notion here is that in waging war in the 20th century, the population is the prize. It is, if you like, the logical consequence of the liberalization of governments and the democratization of states, and, of course, the consequence of the need for national mobilization in fighting a major war. Uh, it is, of course, a familiar refrain from our own counterinsurgency campaigns, uh, whether we're talking about Iraq or Afghanistan. It is what Rupert Smith, uh, in his book of 2005, calls uh, war among the people. But there is a paradox which today's uh, Western states have not fully digested. The practice in Iraq and Afghanistan was not, of course, to promote revolution, but to prevent revolution, uh, to prevent insurgency, to counterinsurgency, there is an irony uh, for those of you who spent your time, spend your time reading military doctrines, uh, which I guarantee will put you to sleep. There is an irony in the U.S. Field Manual 3-24 on counterinsurgency of 2006 in that it takes T.E. Lawrence as a model for counterinsurgency. Lawrence, after all, was an insurgent trying to undermine the Ottoman Empire, uh, not a counterinsurgency trying to promote uh, American uh, support for good governance in Afghanistan or Iraq. <clears throat> there is more logic uh, in what the West has done in that respect in Libya and Syria, where at least the West, of course, has behaved as a revolution, an aid to rebels, um, and thus seen the people uh, as an ally in that rather more direct sense. 
So the population since the First World War has become uh, both a means to the effective waging of war and, as a result, a target within it. And here, too, the First World War has left a legacy. In 1918, uh, Léon Daudet wrote a book called La Guerre Totale, a book which reflected the vocabulary of revolutionary France in the 1790s, uh, a book which expected the full mobilization of the state for the purposes of waging the war exactly as revolutionary France had demanded in the 1790s. The Second World War became the apotheosis of this idea of total war, of the idea of full national mobilization. Uh, and arguably, it was even more true of that war than was the idea of grand strategy. But we need to remember that the idea of total war, as it was adumbrated in the interwar period between 1918 and 1939, was also an idea of warning. It was a threat about what a future war might be like, of a war even more apocalyptic than the First World War has, had been. Thinking about war before 1914 was largely retrospective. It was extrapolated from history and from experience. Thinking about war after 1918 was largely prospective. It rested, above all, on untested ambitions and on underdeveloped technologies, including, of course, those of air power um, and the use uh, of uh, gas, uh, the two in combination with the particular fear of the 1920s and 1930s. As in the Cold War, the underlying intention of much of this was deterrence, of avoiding war, of preventing war, indeed of preventing total war by evoking a threat of war so awful um, that states would do anything rather than fight such a war, rather than actually having to conduct such a war. However, between 1939 and 1945, theory became practice. National leaders on both sides, Winston Churchill in Britain, for example, as well as Joseph Goebbels in Germany, used the phrase total war in order to mobilize their peoples further for war. An idea given birth by the First World War, that of total war, found expression, active expression in the Second World War, and was then given fresh life and new context after 1945 uh, by the use of nuclear weapons. And so the shadow of Verdun and of the Somme, and dare I say it, even of Fromel, fell across the Cold War world. The break in 1945, the discontinuity of nuclear weapons, proved far less dramatic for strategic thought than Bernard Brody uh, first thought when he jumped out of his car to buy the New York Times on the 7th of August, 1945. Thank you very much. Okay, we have um, just under a half hour for questions. If you could identify yourself, then. Sir. Um, if the bomb uh, leads to the thinking that, uh, you know, to have a world war is mad, mutual, mutual destruction. Do you 
climate change is considered an existential threat. Is there any thinking amongst the powers to be that it would be irresponsible to have another big war and we better get on with actually fixing climate change? In the international security environment, um, one would obviously hope there is thinking about among great powers about fixing climate change. And you know, as well as I do, that the powers talk about it and don't actually do very much in terms of proceeding fast, even if they've now got protocols in place that enable them to do that. I, what I, I find uh, rather more uh, frightening, potentially, about climate change is something rather different, and that you may feel I'm not ad addressing uh, your question. Um, and that is that <clears throat> if climate change produces reduced resources uh, for some states, um, those states that have large territorial masses, um, that have abundant, let's say, water supplies or fossil fuels or uh, access to uh, sustainable, agricultural, uh, 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 sustainable ag agriculture, will have assets that others will want. Um, it seems to me to evoke a form of war uh, which we have largely distanced ourselves from in the last hundred years. Uh, the notion that territorial control matters, that frontiers matter, uh, and that um, uh, the capacity to re-engage in wars that could be determined as wars, if you like, for economic control and territorial control, could resurrect themselves. Um, so for that reason, so, uh, as well as any other, uh, I don't think climate changes, if you like, the substitute problem of, of, for nuclear weapons in the 21st century, I, I feel that climate change has the capacity to turn us back uh, in some ways in relation to war uh, rather than present a new set of threats. But it, but it is interesting that the um, leader or the director of net assessment in the United States, this guru named Andrew Marshall, uh, commissioned a report on climate change that effectively militarized it. Yeah. And a lot of it is about issues that are going to affect Australia in terms of rising sea levels, mm -hmm. migration mm -hmm. flows, what will be the security implications. And it wasn't until that report came out that a lot of the U.S. military and, and other militaries took it seriously. So it's, a, it's one of those two-edged swords. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think it's very important precisely that, that, that climate change, uh, initially the argument about climate change and the security environment, didn't relate it to war. <laughs> Um, and and the, the, the argument had moved on so that the connections between climate change and potential for conflict had become much more effectively articulated, which indeed could have, should and ought to have a deterrent effect. Um, g'day. Uh, South China Sea, uh, to me it seems incredibly similar to the line-up of alliances from the First World War. Uh, Australia has once again aligned itself with a great power, this time the United States. We're building a navy so that it works so closely with the United States, 12 submarines. Maybe the navy guys can tell me what the hell they're supposed to do. But um, are we, is there any way that all it takes is a bit of a, a shooting bitch to start out uh, in one of these islands? Uh, would Australia inevitably be dragged into some sort of armed conflict? If I, this, this is where I wasn't going to go, but you've given me the excuse for going there, so I shall. In 2014, this was the classic scenario. You know, the, the, this is how the First World War began. Uh, I would argue that great powers, broadly speaking, have no interest in conducting great wars. Um, you know, if they go to war in any calculated sense, it is much more likely to be in the context in which they see the war as manageable, limited, 
and able to deliver a satisfactory result. In other words, uh, China and the United States engaging in direct confrontation uh, with the implication that that would be major war, if you're using the First World War as an analogy, doesn't seem to be a hold. But what does seem to me to hold, and this is where I do think the South China Sea question is central, uh, is the capacity of lesser powers to engineer great war conflict. Um, the alliance system matters here. If you look, think of 1914, uh, what happens? I mean, the initial clash is essentially between two subordinate powers, Austria-Hungary, the ally of Germany, and Serbia uh, that is allied to Russia. Not in any formal sense, but Russia will support. Um, and the consequence of that is that it is their clash that pulls in the major powers. Uh, what concerns me about the South China Sea is that the natural response of the states adjacent to the South China Sea who feel uh, threatened by China is to turn to closer relationships with the United States. And who controls that relationship? Is that relationship being, going to be controlled by the United States or is that relationship going to be controlled by the Philippines, by Japan, uh, by Taiwan, which, I mean, Taiwan, of course, at the moment is saying nice things to China. Um, but but is, you know, where, where's the balance of power lie here? <clears throat> and it will require a very strong uh, central administration in Washington to be able to resist the sorts of pressure that I think they will be under. Um, so that, you know, the, the sense in which I think the First World War helps us to understand the South China Sea seems to me to relate to that point uh, about the capacity of allies, particularly allies, caught in ambiguous positions. I mean, put it in an Australian context, uh, you have a, a strong, close military relationship with the United States, uh, but of course you also have a strong economic relationship with China. Uh, so which is going to play out if you're confronted with this conflict? That in itself creates ambiguity, uh, which can create confusion and crisis. Hugh, great, great discussion. Lovely seeing you here in Australia again. Um, we looked at strategic failure some 12 years ago. Can you comment on some of the existential and interstitial issues with regard to Brexit and how you see the UK might reform with the echoes potentially of uh, the First World War? <laughs> well, I think you know, one of the problems in Britain at the moment is that... Uh, those with whom you agree uh, speak to each other, and those whom, with whom you don't agree don't seem to meet. Um, in other words, uh, let me nail my colours to the mast. I'm, not, I'm formally not meant to nail my colours to the mast, but as a Remain person, um, I meet lots of other people who are Remain people, and I don't meet many people who are Brexit people. Um, and the, the consequence, in, if you like, in existential terms, to use that adjective, which incidentally, I'm going to digress for a moment, because I wanted to say this, but I'm not, you've given me the excuse in using the adjective. It's worth remembering that existential struggle, which is something we associate so strongly with the, First world, the Second World War, really derives from the First World War. You know, because in 1914, they'd all been reading uh, Darwin, and they were all social Darwinists, well, not all of them, but many of them were social Darwinists. Darwinists and indeed, Bepp and Holweg, the German Chancellor in 1940, said, if there will be war, it will be an existenzkampf, you know, a struggle for survival. Um, so, uh, you know, we use this vocabulary in strategic studies today as though it comes out of the first Second World War. So that is the existential struggle, the good war, uh, the war that had to be fought. Um, 
where does Brexit, sorry, that, was, that really was going off on a tangent. Um, where, 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 does, where does Brexit leave Britain? Well, I, I mean, we don't know how it's going to play out. Uh, and that is one of the challenges of the referendum decision, is nobody has any sense in Britain about what it might mean uh, and what its implications are. Um, the, the, the positive argument will be the dust will settle, uh, we'll end up with a very similar arrangement with the EU, but without any say in the solution. It'll be like Norway. Um, and that to that extent, uh, we won't see much change. The reverse side, of course, is to say, even if that is what happens, we will have weakened Britain as, uh, as an international player, we'll have weakened Britain as a link between the US and Europe, um, which, of course, was the justification for Blair getting involved in Iraq in the first place, for example, um, but that we will no longer have that, uh, that importance for the US, um, and that we will have indeed under our, undermined our own ability as a state to engage internationally, that Europe has become so fundamental to how so many people in Britain think. And of course, as you, I'm sure you know, there's a generational division here too, uh, which is that uh, most Brexiteers are older and most Remain people are younger. Um, I'm older, but I'm a Remain person. But that's, you know, so that would be, you know, I think there are strategic consequences here. We are being recorded, aren't we? Yes. So, sorry, I can't say the next bit, but I'll tell you after, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. One of the roles of submarines is to cut off the internet to a country by finding its uh, submarine cables and cutting them. Um, do you think that um, some of the next uh, issues that come up could be cyber war? And do you think that might mean that these experiences of the past can't be used to, to deal with what might be coming up in the future? Cyber clearly is very important. But I'm a sufficient traditionalist to feel that war actually involves uh, a clash between two sides uh, which include uh, killing people. It includes violence. Uh, in other words, a cyber attack which brings down the banking system, a cyber attack that deprives you of the internet, is not in itself war. It may be a means to wage war in a wider context. It may be an element. In fact, for the war, it certainly will be an element, um, just as hooking up the cables in 1914 uh, was a way of isolating Germany and routing all Germany's international communications uh, through uh, London, uh, which forced, of course, Germany to use wireless, which then became publicly broadcast and available for intercept, interception as a consequence. So there is, if you like, a First World War parallel here too. But this is a, this is a means to waging war, not war itself, not as a substitute for war. Um, the conflict in cyberspace will self-evidently, I think, be part of war. Will it be a substitute for war, which is what some people seem to be arguing? That I'm much less sure of, um, because uh, if it becomes a substitute for war and it doesn't physically involve the business of fighting, then for me, I think we need to rethink what we mean by war. I mean, I, uh, and, and I would be in favour, and I argue this pretty extensively, I suspect James might disagree with me, will disagree with me, but I, but I would be in favour of arguing for a definition of war that is tight so that we have something that is susceptible to things like international law, uh, things like clear definition that provide us with some sort of conceptual framework uh, and which uh, therefore uh, doesn't militarise a whole raft of other activities which we may be able to deal with without militarising them. I don't know if that's 
as articulate but, as you wanted them to be. But you did give me an opening there, so I'm going to take it. <laughs> yeah, I thought um, you would. <laughs> what about the cyber war as a means to avert war in the way that um, if Iran hadn't come to the negotiating table, it was pretty clear that the U.S. was about yeah. about ready to engage in a massive yeah. cyber attack, Nitro Zeus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in that regard, doesn't it fit into your category of aversion, a deterrent? Yeah, oh, I, absolutely. I think, I, I think it could work there. Uh, and, but, you know, deterrence isn't war. Um, absolutely. Uh, you know, so, so if, it, if it acts as a way of warning a state, um, of course what you've done is you've raised the ante, you've created the possibility it could, in, it could include active hostilities, uh, but I entirely accept that it could act as a deterrent or, 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 or a form of coercion. Yeah. I'm sorry, I saw right there. Thank you, Professor Strawn, um, very much for the lecture. Uh, Douglas Newton uh, is, is my name. Um, you mentioned that. Uh, very nice to meet you. <laughs> and you, um, you mentioned that various people wrote memoranda uh, around about Christmas time, uh, perhaps uh, so full of uh, well impatience with the generals who kept promising all summer some decisive outcome. You might remember that uh, Lord Lansdowne was one who wrote uh, two memoranda in yep. November 1916. Yep. Uh, just a precise question about that to throw this in. I don't have the precise words in front of me, but if I, I recall his memoranda when something like, if the war is prolonged for another year with no improvement in the Entente's bargaining power, then the war would have been unnecessarily prolonged. And those who unnecessarily prolong a war are as much to blame as those who unnecessarily began it. Mm. Uh, autumn 1916, aftermath of the Somme, mm -hmm. they're done. Mm -hmm. My question is this. Uh, in spite of the strategic lessons we learned during the First War, which you described as a tool to win the Second, wouldn't the world have been much better off if the Entente had accepted Wilson's office, mm -hmm. the House Grey Memorandum during 1916, mm -hmm. the German peace note kicking it off, mm -hmm. and peace had been made by negotiation at The Hague no, by sure. January 1917? Well, yes. What is extraordinary, isn't it? And this is actually one of the other things, if I'd given a different lecture, I would have addressed, which is precisely that. Why no peace at the end of 1916? And Lansdowne, you know, embodies it most clearly, as indeed he'll embody it clearly at the end of 1917 as well. Um, it is extraordinary that there is no peace. Um, and the relevance of this, you know, I would argue, for how we think about war today, um, is... To us, it seems totally counterintuitive that the war should carry on beyond Verdun and the Somme. Uh, and after all, that isn't the sum total of what's happening in 1916. Uh, but those two battles you know, roughly contribute to 1.7 million casualties. Uh, uh, in that, that, you know, and we've no idea, of course, of the exact figures. And yet the war goes on. And so uh, two conclusions for that, uh, to that. Um, one is uh, the dead are sunk costs. Uh, it, it's, you know, the more people that are killed, the more difficult it, gets to, it becomes to end this war. Um, and you know, I've already tried to make connections between the, this war and, and, and more recent wars. Um, but in relation to Iraq and Afghanistan, Afghanistan particularly, uh, in Britain, where the losses, of course, were nothing like those of the First World War, it was very hard to draw a line precisely because you could not say that people have died in vain. I mean, it, it, you know, one of the most striking things about the publication of the Chilcot Report uh, two weeks ago was precisely uh, the family members of those who were killed in Iraq saying, our sons, our husbands, whoever, died in vain. Um, 
that is an extraordinarily difficult thing politically in a democracy to be able to do. Um, and what 1916-17 seems to be showing show is, even with the losses as high as they were, it was very hard, in even in democratic states, to say that we're going to negotiate. The second um, point I would make um, is that, of course, when Wilson... Well, I mean, the first peace offer is a German peace office, offer, um, uh, and the second one is Wilson's. Uh, in the within in the winter of 1916-17, that when those peace offers are made, it becomes clear very quickly to House uh, uh, that there is no there is a, there is a, a bottom line for each of the belligerents, which means there's no no basis for negotiation. That actually, once a war's begun, it becomes extraordinarily difficult to end it. It's much easier to begin a war than to end it. And if you think you know through the end of this war which arguably, taking the Lansdowne Memorandum and those peace offers, might be the end of 1916. When does it actually end? Well, of course, many current historians would say 1923. The 11th of November is 1918. is certainly not the end of the First World War. Um, because what you have got unleashed is not just that core conflict, which is what the Germans' uh, peace offer and Wilson's peace offer is addressing, but a whole raft of other local conflicts which have been added on to the core conflict, which have widened it. Japan in China, uh, the Ottoman Empire entering the war, trying to recover what it has lost. Uh, Bulgaria anxious to establish itself as a Balkan power comparable with the other Balkan powers. Um, and it becomes very hard. To, you know, all that ends on the 11th of November 1918 is the war with Germany, um, but not all the other wars. So, uh, you know, I think there is a point here which is, and it comes back to the South China Sea question, is that if alliances trigger wars, then the alliances actually give free reign to a whole raft of different agendas and ambitions, which are much harder to bring under control. They may have a deterrent effect in preventing war, but if they fail as a deterrent effect, then the consequences uh, are truly multiplying. Thank you. you mentioned the South China Sea as a possible flashpoint. I just wondered, we haven't mentioned the build-up of NATO, um, the new front line uh, to the east, and also Russia's manoeuvrings. Yeah. I wonder what degree of risk you see there might be in that situation. You. If you think where NATO was uh, before it got involved in Afghanistan. Uh, the line then given was, if NATO doesn't deliver in Afghanistan, NATO is a busted flush, essentially. It's operating out of area. Um, and it's requiring uh, its members to think about operating out of area. Um, NATO has not delivered in Afghanistan, and yet NATO is still in business. Um, why is that the case? Well, in some ways, of course, because NATO has redefined what its object is. Uh, its object uh, in relation to Afghanistan was no longer to succeed in Afghanistan. Its object was to prevent the alliance falling apart. Um, and it comes out of Afghanistan with an alliance which at one level did extraordinarily well. I mean, not just NATO members, but Australia, for example. Uh, you know, this wider alliance uh, taking part. Uh, over 50 states at one point. Uh, a quarter of the states of the world uh, were part of this alliance. <coughs> And so NATO sort of congratulates itself 
even though it didn't produce a result commensurate with the effort that it seems to put into the, into the war. Uh, it may still do so. Of course, NATO is still involved in Afghanistan. Um, and, uh, you know, I, as somebody who uh, has been to Afghanistan quite a lot and feel deeply, I have to say, for what those people have gone through, uh, I very much hope it does remain committed to producing some sort of satisfactory result in Afghanistan. Uh, but if you put it in the context of Europe, uh, and specifically of you know, the inverted commas dangers that are faced in the Baltic states or the dangers that are faced by the central European states or indeed the dangers that are faced particularly given what's happening in Turkey uh, in, in, on the southern flank, what is striking here is that these, these dangers are diverse and without a common denominator. Uh, but NATO is using a common phrase, which is this appalling phrase, hybrid warfare, to operationalize the, the threat that they confront. They don't face a threat from hybrid warfare. You know, if they're the Baltic states, they're worried about Russia. If they're Poland, they're worried about Russia. Um, if they're down in the south, they're worried about refugees and the fallout from Syria. These are, this is, is not subsumed by the phrase hybrid warfare. So my concern about, about NATO is the ambiguity about what it is confronting, um, that it is not in the situation uh, that it was during the Cold War, thank goodness. Uh, it, it is not confronting um, a Warsaw Pact NATO uh, 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 confrontation with nuclear weapons on either side, which was uh, a dangerous situation, but one that had an, a compelling narrative. At the moment, the narratives are very confused. Um, and to, if I can go on as I'm talking about this, it, you know, I would actually argue the real argument to do with hybrid warfare um, is uh, that you know, why are you concerned if you're a NATO country, a NATO member, a Baltic state, about your Russian population? Um, if your Russian population is happy within your state uh, and you've actually got systems of good governance and so on, that should provide the answer to the problem. Hybrid warfare is a form of NATO mirroring back to itself its own concerns, which is the vulnerability uh, of the loyalties of its own members. Uh, and uh, that seems to be the issue. So I, I would argue, uh, I, I, don't, you know, I don't think, quite frankly, uh, that um, there is an immediate danger for the NATO members. Absolutely, uh, if you are not a NATO member and you are in Eastern or Central Europe, if you're Ukraine, Finland or whatever, I would be concerned. Um, but they've had cause to be concerned before. Uh, and the answer lies to me in their own internal structures and resilience uh, in a way which, of course, Ukraine did not have, but Finland, for example, certainly does have. Uh, so, Hugh, how are you? Chris Smallhorn, and for, for the sake of completeness, I am in the Navy, but you probably worked that piece out. I'd like to ask you a question, uh, if I may, Hugh, which I make an observation of a tension that's, uh, that's, that's building. So you've taken us on a journey where, from, of strategy where it's moved to a total strategy, a grand strategy into the total strategy, and you've talked about it very much at the national level, but you've highlighted the importance of alliances in the world's security strategic structure. Now I'll make the observation of what's happening with the war on terrorism. We fundamentally have two major theatres building uh, across the globe, three if you include a European theatre. Um, the war on terrorism, if I make an observation of Brexit, the presidential race and the recent, um, uh, the recent uh, uh, um, uh, election that we've had here in Australia, would give a sense that at a national level, all of those populations, at least the three that I've listed, are giving a sense of wishing to move to a more of an isolationist behaviour. But yet we accept 
um, and, and, and you've proven it through numerous pieces of your speech tonight, that the alliance is in the alliances, more pluralistically there, are very important to security both in the prevention of war and, and in the very sad case that should it happen again in the execution of war. So I see this tension building, and I was wondering if you might comment on that tension and whether it has whether there's a core steerage here in the future. I think one of the problems we've got is we've tried to institutionalise alliances without a clear sense of the strategic purpose of the alliance. I mean, that's really, in a sense, you know, following on the question about NATO, uh, is the challenge. I mean, NATO flourished precisely because it had a very concrete uh, and direct threat in geopolitical terms to confront. Um, and we've sort of lost track of that. I mean, I, you know, and this goes to the heart, I think, of, of where Australia might find itself as well as where Britain might find itself. Because uh, what we have assumed is that what binds us is a common ideology. We're democratic states. Uh, and that we therefore have a shared interest uh, in behaving as democratic states, in acknowledging human rights, in acknowledging civil liberties, you know, all the things that we, free society and um, probably capitalist society as well in terms of how, of how we behave. But actually, these alliances um, in, in, have had much more specific drivers than that. Um, and what I think we're seeing, it could be understood as isolationism. Another more positive way might be saying it's regionalism, actually. You know, where is the immediate threat? Well, the immediate threat, you know, the issues that concern Australia are self-evidently, and the submarine issue comes back to it, are self-evidently what happens in the South Pacific um, and what happens uh, in the adjacent area. And you may buy into uh, a wider security framework by contributing in Afghanistan or contributing in Iraq. Um, you're probably not actually going to contribute to the defense of Europe. Um, you know, had a problem with that even in the Second World War. Uh, so it seems unlikely you're likely to contribute to that in, 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 in any future conflict. And equally, Britain, quite frankly, is probably, you know, though they, we don't say it, is probably not going to contribute much to your security. Uh, uh, this is one of the challenges that the Five Eyes, you know, intelligence relationship creates, is that four of those eyes... Are, are Pacific eyes, and Britain is not uh, a Pacific eye any longer. Um, so, you know, I, I think um, shared values are probably not sufficient basis for an alliance to work coherently when, you know, how we understand war and how we understand strategy has a very strong geographical component to it. And where are your immediate threats? Uh, and um, you know, Britain has ducked that in terms of where it goes with its national security strategy uh, because both the 2010 and 2015 national security strategies talk about no diminution of global influence um, and, and the 2015 one at least does do a sort of name check of the, of, the, of the world and I think there's probably two or three lines on Australia there and say how much we value the relationship uh, but what that actually may mean uh, is not at all clear um, so I, w I would, uh, you know, I, I think there are uh, challenges here to alliances. Um, and, you know, it would be extraordinary, you know, speaking as a historian, extraordinarily strange if an alliance relationship did survive uh, that long. You know, that we, we sort of, you know, what we want to do is to hold the world as it, as it is. And actually, sadly, that's not what happens. So we have to be ready to adapt. Um, and uh, in 
you know, the challenge, the Brexit point is that actually what Britain is doing with Brexit is drawing away from where geographically it should be. You know, uh, and that is what's so counterintuitive about the whole thing, uh, is that actually our security in the first instance is dependent on that arc that runs from Scandinavia through Western Europe and round to the Mediterranean. Uh, and Europe is part of our security relationship. Uh, and here I will go on the record. I mean, I've, you know, I, I, I've spoken at events at Russia and so on where I've used the word Europe, and certain MPs who have been profound Brexiteers have just refused even to use the word Europe. And when you say, I'm only using it because Europe has involved us in two world wars in the 20th century and seems to be fairly important in how we understand our security, and there's a simple denial uh, of, of, of where we are. So uh, isolationist seems to be too strong. We are connected, uh, but um, how that connected connection manifests itself in defense terms seems to me different from our saying, clearly Australians and Brits are going to speak to each other for all the problem of Fromel. Uh, we will carry on speaking to each other, uh, I hope, uh, and, um, that, uh, and that there will be bonds. But does that produce a defense relationship? Good question. I want to um, um, thank Sir Hugh Strong, but as a way to sort of wrap this up, uh, return to how you began about the personal connections to war of, and generational ones, that we're on the cusp of a generation that doesn't experience war because the wars are being fought by the space of 1% of a population now. And I know from my own experience, I had two grandfathers who fought in the First World War. My memories of war come from attics, you know, the uniforms, the, the gas masks, but also one grandfather who was a terrorist in, in Turkey. Um, I think that... Freedom fighter. A freedom fighter, <laughs> an insurgent. Um, yes. And what that brought to me, and, and why I'm very grateful for this talk, is that we have to remember the human connection here and the trauma of you know, the memories, as well as the people who fought in these wars. So you've reconnected the personal and the strategic, the civilian and the military. So I'm, I, I think we've all been well served by that. So thank you very, very much. Um, please join me in thanking you. Thank you.